If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open to the book of John where we continue that uh, this morning. John chapter 19 is where we're going to be. I'll tell you what, while you're turning there, turn to, I think it's the second to last book of the Old Testament. It's Zechariah chapter 12. And just stick a worship guide or maybe uh, a pen or something there because we're going we're gonna to go there eventually. If you want to stick maybe the ribbon of your Bible there, we'll get there eventually. But John 19 is where we're going to be uh, primarily. And we'll go to Zechariah 12. I want you guys to lay your eyes on a couple of verses there. Um, pertaining to our passage here today. So uh, I'm not funny enough or clever enough, but sometimes I jokingly think about how much good content there is if I were to be a Christian comedian. I'm not saying I would be able to present the content. I'm simply writing it. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's so much good stuff written there. Again, I'm not funny enough or clever enough to do it uh, on my own, but I know that there's a lot of good material there. Uh, one of those is potluck lunches. Okay, so uh, I don't, we don't have as many of those as my former church. My former church, we had potluck, potluck a lot. And some of you guys grew up at churches where you had potluck every Sunday. Anybody one of those guys? Well, come on, I know some of you are. That's right. Every Sunday you have potluck lunch. There's so much good comedic material around the potluck table. Uh, and I've th- thought about it a lot because at my former church, you stand in line a long time and wait for these meals. And, you know, sometimes you start to think, um, I want to get in the front of the line because I want hot food, you know. But then you also want, you know, last is first kind of thing. Hot food or selflessness. I don't know, there's some material there. Uh, Also the mystery of like, there's two chicken casseroles and they look identical, but two different ladies made them. And you know that one of them notoriously is delicious and the other notoriously isn't as delicious. And the mystery of whose am I going to get? You know what I mean? There's mystery there, some comedy. Also the peer pressure of not knowing whose food you're getting. Maybe they're behind you in line and you don't know. You know what I mean? I just think there's some material there. There's also some material with, when it comes to corporate prayer time, maybe in Sunday school or in, in worship. You know, uh, maybe you got something in your eye, and so you just kind of open your eye during prayer, and you catch a glance, and you meet eyes with somebody else, and that's really awkward, right? It's really, it's a good, again, some good material about making eye contact with someone during prayer. Another one, and the one that's most pertinent to what we're going to talk about today, is some of the, the titles of our songs that we sing. Listen to this. Just think about, I mean, outside looking in, you've never been in church before. Some of our song titles sound like they could be the titles of horror films. Listen to this. There's power in the blood. Reek, reek, reek. You know what I mean? Are you washed in the blood? It's like Carrie. You guys, okay? Or the one that we just got done singing. There's a fountain filled with blood. That sounds kind of gruesome, right? I say all that just to say this, and I know that's silly, but listen, the passage we're going to look at today is a little bit uh, gruesome. Uh, Jesus has been crucified, and he's going to have a spear jabbed into his side. It's not him. He's not, he's not actually in his body anymore. He's, he's vacated. It's a corpse, and he is stabbed in the side, and what comes out of his body is water and blood. It's a disgusting scene, and the reason I identify that is to say, outside looking in, it is grotesque, and it's off-putting. It's nasty, but seen with the right eyes, which we will see today, that such a nasty scene is beautiful and life-giving and instructing. And that's why we can have songs like the one we just sang, powerfully, there is a fountain filled with blood, and that not be a nasty scene, but a beautiful scene. So today, we're going to see a nasty scene, but by the end of our time, I want to show you guys just how beautiful it is, all right? Let's look at John 19 together. John 19, we're going to look at verses 31 through 37 this morning. And as I said, we'll go to that passage in Zechariah later on in our time. So let's look at it. John 19, 31 through 37 says this. 
since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, that's Jesus, with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. For context purposes, uh, go ahead and throw that map up there again. We're not going to look at it long because I want, for the sake of time, I want to really keep moving. But we're at the very end of the road here on the last steps of Jesus. And if you haven't been with us these past few weeks, you may have never seen this before. But uh, these are sort of the last steps, starting at one, where he's having the last supper with his disciples, sort of in the center of that map, sort of at the bottom, and then kind of working his way all the way up to the top, where the Garden of Gethsemane is. He was arrested, brought back for trial, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, where you see at the Praetorium 6 and 8, where he was uh, tried before Pilate. And then finally, number 9 is where he was taken outside of the city walls. By the way, notice real quick one thing, how close outside of the city walls that Calvary is, where Jesus is crucified. This isn't way out in some countryside. It's right outside of the city that's pertinent to what we're going to talk about in our passage this morning. You can take that down now. Uh, Jesus has been crucified. We've talked about this several times already. The innocent for the guilty. John has highlighted Jesus' godness, which is his main function, is to talk about the divinity, the godness of Jesus. He's not a hopeless sufferer, but a sovereign savior. That's why the last thing that he said in our passage and in the last of his life was that little three-word phrase, that's three words in English, one word in the original Greek, tetelestai, or it is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished, because it was mission accomplished, fulfilled, finished, and yet God isn't finished. Even while his sacrificial body hangs lifeless, John's going to show us that Jesus's very corpse is a symbol with which John is going to teach his readers about the power of the cross. Isn't that neat? Jesus isn't even in his body, and yet there's still symbolic beauty in a hanging corpse. So this morning, if you're taking notes, we'll get to sort of what the notes I'm going to put on the screen in a, in a little bit, okay? Sort of an unconventional thing. You're, normally, I would go ahead and give you the first thing. First, we need to do some setup and walk through our passage, and then at the very back end, we'll look at three things to take home. So first, let's look at verse 31 together. It says, since it was the day of preparation, that's when lambs were being uh, prepared and food was being prepared for the Passover feast. So, so it was the day of preparation. The Sabbath day was the next day, it says, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, meaning a special day following the week of Passover. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So normally, just for some historical details here, the Romans would normally just leave men hanging until they died. And it would take sometimes even days. It would take a while. And so even the cleanup, they would leave to the vultures. They didn't take the bodies down, but they did it this time for a special reason. And that's because the Jews had an issue with that in this case. Not because of the man, not because Jesus was special, but to them, it was because of themselves. You see, two things. Number one, in their law, it says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree, on a cross, would qualify. 
And so this was a cursed man, which to them doesn't matter. They, that's why they put him there. But the second part is important to them, and that's that they believe that according to their law, if a person was hanged overnight, it didn't just curse the person, it cursed the land as well. Curse was not good. It meant that famine would come or sword would come. They would be uh, ransacked or ravaged by people with a violent you know, trajectory or whatever it may be. They thought if that body's laying up there, especially going into the Sabbath, he's not only cursed, he's cursing the land of Jerusalem. That's bad news. And so, hey, Pilate, could you guys take those bodies off of those crosses because we want God's favor? which is crazy, right? Considering they just slayed the Son of God. But that's the image that we see here. Calvary was on the very edge of Jerusalem, which we saw on that map just a moment ago. And so cursing Jerusalem would be bad, especially on a special Sabbath being the Passover Saturday, the very next day. And so they requested that they speed up the process. But that makes you kind of wonder, why, why does breaking the legs speed up the process? But I'm going to explain that real quick. I'm not going to bog down here too much. But the reason they broke the legs, they, they used an iron mallet, and they went up to the guys that were hanging on the cross, and they would break their legs. They had nails in each inner wrist about right here, one through their feet also that were together kind of crossed over. And so breaking the legs would prevent the victim from being able to push up off of the nail on their feet, push up opening the chest cavity so that they could breathe. So if they broke their legs, they couldn't breathe. So in effect, while breaking their legs, what they were really doing was they were suffocating him. But Jesus is already dead. And so there's no need to break Jesus's legs. Look at verses 32 and 33. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Again, no need to speed up the death process of a dead man which was unusual for a victim of crucifixion to die so quickly. But we know that Jesus died quickly for a couple of reasons. Number one, we could say a theological reason. He was bearing the sins of the world, but also for a physiological reason. Um, Jesus may have died faster because his beatings were double and his lashings were maximum. Some anatomy stuff here, you know, the Roman flogging that Jesus endured prior to being crucified that John, by the way, doesn't even mention, but the other guys do, was done with a leather whip with metal balls woven into it, pieces of sharp bone woven into the braids. The metal balls were there because they would deeply bruise the skin and the muscles, and the muscles were there to cut into the flesh and expose muscles and veins and even the bowels of their victims. It's a gross scene, and if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, it pretty accurately depicts it, even with makeup. It was more gruesome than even that. Those who were flogged and beaten and whipped would often go into hypovolemic shock, which you don't have to know what that means other than to just say they would have lost so much blood that they would go into shock, and the result of that would be the heart would race and race and race to pump blood that was not there. Uh, the victim would collapse or faint due to low blood pressure, which is what happens when Jesus leaves the walls and Simon of Cyrene carries his crossbeam for him. Also, the kidneys would shut down to preserve the remaining bodily fluid, and even they would settle into extreme thirst because they had no uh, fluid in their body, which is what Jesus says, right? I thirst, and they give him that sour wine to drink. We looked at that last week. Look at verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Blood and water. Two things that are going on here. One is physical and brutal. The other one, I'm going to argue, is symbolic and beautiful, which we're going to see in verse 37 towards the end. The physical thing that's happening here is that they, got, they grab this six-foot spear and they stick it up. They can't, they're going to break this guy's legs because they think he's already dead, but just to make sure, let's pierce his side and see what happens. Will he react or will it be clear that this is a corpse now? So prior to death, 
the sustained rapid heartbeat caused by hypovolemic shock, which it makes sense as to what that Jesus is suffering from, it would also cause fluid to gather in a sac around the heart and around the lungs. And so you'd have water in this area, it's called uh, pericardium, meaning around the heart. There'd be water around the heart, and in the blood there'd be, or in the heart there'd be blood. And so you kind of have this image of this, the Roman coming up and sticking him with a spear here coming up, it penetrating his heart, and as a result of that comes out, the water that's surrounding the heart, and you have blood that's coming out of the heart. By the way, I didn't know any of these things without researching them. I'm not some doctor, okay? You can go check it out yourself. But I say that just to say, there's a physiological reason why water and blood left the body of our Lord. But we're going to see later that there's something more than just physical things happening here. Before we do that, though, John tells us that, and he paints a vivid anatomical picture. Why? I'm going to tell you why. It's because John is emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. Here's why. John is written in the late part of the first century, several decades even after the event, these events transpired. An eyewitness, but he waited before he penned it. He saw the other gospels and said, I'm going to tell this from a different angle. And so when John writes in the first century, late of the first century, there are these guys, uh, there are many false teachers. One of those is a group of people called the Docetists. And the Docetists, literally that word means it seems. They were a branch of Gnostics who sort of had secret knowledge. That's in quotes, right? These guys, the docetists, again, it seems, they denied the humanity of Jesus and claimed that his sufferings were like a hologram or like an illusion. They weren't real. He didn't actually die. But the reason why is because they believed if God is divine, if Jesus is divine, he can't also be uh, human. And so John is writing a very human reaction here. And the reason he's writing a human reaction is to dispel that myth, that false doctrine. We see John's response to that heresy here is he was stabbed in the side and his actual body leaked actual body fluid. Also, that's why he says in John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You read behind the text and you see that John is attacking a modern day heresy, which makes a lot of sense out of his next statement. And that's why I say that. Clearly he's saying it actually happened. This is why it's a physical matter. And then verse 35 makes a lot of sense. He says, he who saw it, speaking of himself, has borne witness. This is my testimony. He's like, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. He said it actually happened, and I'm not lying about it. He uses a couple of words here that are worth noting. He says, witness, he's borne witness, his testimony is true. Now, we read those words and maybe read them with a, a biblical mindset, but if you were to sort of just hear that sentence, you hear the word witness and testimony, what situation does your mind go to? It goes to a courtroom, right? Which we've talked about in the book of John already, witness and testimony. What John is sort of portraying here and painting a picture of is that he is the one that's on the stand testifying to the events as they actually occurred, that witnesses give an account that the events can be most reliably understood. Again, that's why when we first started this thing, I told you that the book of John, when we've walked through from chapter one all the way to this point, is the gospel according to John, because he was a witness, and he wants people to believe the true story based on his testimony. That's why the whole theme of John is mentioned at the very end of the book, in John 20, verses 30 and 31. He doesn't even leave it up to the imagination while he's writing these things. He says it clearly when he says, again, 20, chapter, chapter 20, 30 and 31 says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. So he's like, there's more evidence we could talk about, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is not just a man, but he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, or the result, you may have life in his name. 
He's witnessing the trial motif, and he's saying this is the testimony that you may believe, that you may have life, and he's pleading to us the same thing. It's not hearsay. I was there. Believe. I think he's wanting us to believe just a handful of things in this part of the passage, and that's what I'm going to leave you with if you're taking notes today. Three things, sort of responses to this fountain that we're going to see. Number one is to remember that God is in control in life's chaos. To remember that God is in control in life's chaos. We're going to see that with the word fulfillment that's going to come in just a moment. Don't miss the word fulfillment because it means that something is happening for a purpose, that God has already laid it out. It's happening for a reason. So we're reminded that God is in control in life's chaos. And there's some principles we're going to apply to our own lives. We see this theme of Jesus foretelling and fulfilling all through John. We saw that with his arrest when he said they're coming. We saw that with his betrayal when he said, Judas, go do what you're going to do. We saw that in his denial from Peter when he said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. We saw that in the type of death that he had when he said, I will be lifted up from the earth. We saw it over and over and over again. All these things seen. And then two, last, last week we saw two of those when he got uh, the thirst when he was on the cross. And then also his garments being divided. And so all this happens to say, Jesus is Lord, and he's sovereign over these circumstances. He is God even in the midst of the chaos. Look at verse 36. What it says, it says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be, don't miss this word, fulfilled. We saw that twice last week. We're now going to see two more fulfillments in our passage that follow. Why would John and Jesus want us readers to know that these moments, God was at work? In the moments, God was always at work. And here's why. Because the rescuer upon whom the entire hope of humanity rests is now a mere corpse. I mean, the greatest opportunity for people to think, God didn't see this coming. You hear that, right? The Son of God is a corpse of this. He's dead. And John says, that too was part of the plan that the scripture might be fulfilled. The reason why we see that John wants us to know that God is at work is because in the harshest and vilest of circumstances, it's easy, please hear this, in the harshest and vilest of circumstances, it's easy to lose comfort, joy, and peace, and trust. And it's easy to wonder if God is even aware of your suffering or maybe he's asleep at the wheel. Because when chaos happens, and conflict happens, and suffering happens, you think, God, is this really what you want for me? And I say that to say this, Christian, God is more than aware of the chaos that often floods your life, and he remains in control through it. If God would use the death of his own son to draw many to himself, would he not use your light and momentary affliction to do the same? God uses tragedy to bring you nearer to him, not further away. A couple of years ago, uh, something happened in my family that I'm sure many of you can empathize with. Um, my grandmother, my mom's grandmother, we call her Meemaw. Uh, her name is Dorothy Henderson. They live over in, in Brandon. A couple of years ago, her heart stopped um, for five to ten seconds at a time uh, one evening. It happened several times, and it was scary. And so uh, she ended up going to the doctor, obviously, and um, a lot of confusion, unsure of what's wrong. Our family seeking the Lord and seeking understanding and praying and leaning on God. In other words, potential tragedy brought us nearer to Him, right? That's what that looks like, is uh, an obviously terrible situation. We're not sure what's going to happen. Very unsure of what the future holds, maybe even death. 
We go to the Lord and say, God, what is happening here? Give us comfort. Well, the immediate aftermath of that was a cancer discovery. And not good cancer, not that any cancer is ever good, but especially uh, bad cancer was discovered. That immediately followed. Now, let me say this. My grandmother is an incredibly faithful woman, an incredibly godly woman. She's the, the wife of a pastor. Not that that makes anyone better than anybody else, but this woman walks with Jesus. And her immediate reaction to that moment where she was diagnosed with cancer was, uh, or precancerous cells, I should say, that looked very, very bad, um, was despair. So despairing that she said, I don't even want treatments. I'm just ready to go. And it was, it was heavy for us as a family because she's got five children and a husband, and that's, that, is, that is the peak of despair, isn't it? I don't even want the treatments. Just going to let it happen. And so after some time talking with family and we're grateful that she agreed to, to receive treatments, months of treatments, which were hard, which some of you guys know. Some of you guys may have even yourselves been through chemotherapy and things of the sort, or a family member, and those things are hard. She lost a, a healthy loss of weight of 100 pounds, and today uh, she is not only cancer-free, but she is thriving, and we're rejoicing. A month ago, uh, my mom and her parents and her four siblings got together for what they called a packing party. Uh, but none of them were going anywhere, but not yet. Well, show that image real quick. Um, this is my, my family. Uh, aren't they so good looking? It makes sense now, doesn't it, when you see me? I know. Um, that right there in the center is uh, Miss Dorothy. That's my grandmother, and um, she looks so healthy and is doing really well. Um, I show you that because they have a, you see behind them, they're the packing party, and I said they're not going anywhere. Um, they got together because they have been, they'd seen her get near uh, going to be with Jesus. And so they wanted to get together and have a packing party to celebrate the blessings through the years, to assure one another that even in death we are victorious in Jesus, to make plans to comfort family and friends whenever we leave them behind, to sing praise to God. They sang hymns like uh, Blessed Assurance, and when we all get to heaven, their packing party was really a getting ready to go home party because tomorrow isn't clearly promised. It's just a neat little idea, just them to be reminded that this life isn't it, and chaos will happen, but it doesn't change what God is up to for eternity. You can take that down. I say that just to say, outcomes, whether filled with rejoicing or filled with sorrow, because they don't always turn out that way, do they? And the outcome of those things, again, whether filled with rejoicing or filled with sorrow, they don't minimize the chaos that you go through to get there. But I'm telling you this, that God would have you seek to be less concerned with your worry and more comforted by his sovereign hand in all things, chaos included. Our minds tend to go to the worry and to the stress and to the anxiety. But in the midst of those conflict moments, God would rather you be concerned with the fact that he is in control, that he is good, and that he loves you. And I've rejoiced through her healing, but I've also grieved through the loss of both of my dad's parents, the loss of a close friend. And I know that you know, it doesn't always go the way that we want it to. It goes the way that God intends it to. And he will never leave us nor forsake us, and he works all things for the good of those that love him. And you may be going through it right now. And I'm just telling you that to remind you of those things. Not that you don't know them, but we need to hear them. God has never ceased to be good, and never lost an ounce of control in any day before this one, and he won't in any day after this one. And I don't know what you're going through, 
but I do know that God intends to use your turmoil to draw you nearer to the one who can give you comfort through it, not further away. Trials don't have to be obstacles. They can be opportunities for solidifying your faith. I just wanted to remind you of that, that God is in control in life circumstances, chaos, and I think we see that in our passage. The second thing is this, to rest in Jesus' payment, not mine. To rest in Jesus' payment, not ours. We're going to see that there's a sense of being washed in our passage today. I mentioned this earlier, but two Old Testament passages are fulfilled through Jesus' corpse, and I want to hit on both of them because they are glorious. Look at the full now part of verse 36. So we read a part of it. Uh, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. 36 continues, it says, not one of his bones, notice the quotation, this is the fulfillment, not one of his bones will be broken. The source of this reference is likely Exodus 12, 46, or perhaps Roman, uh, Numbers 9, 12. Annually, the Jews would do this thing called the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. It was instructed to them, like I said, in Exodus chapter 12. And the reason they would bring this Passover lamb is at this holiday that we're looking at today, uh, Passover season. Uh, the reason was to remember a time back in the Old Testament, back in the book of Exodus, when God provided a lamb to bear the sins and graciously pass over the sins of people by pouring out death on the substitutionary lamb. You guys know it as painting the doorpost and God seeing the blood of another, of a lamb, and passing over the sins of his own people. Hebrews 9.22 talks about the need of, a lamb, or of blood and salvation. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's not a free pardon of iniquity, in other words. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not a free pardon of iniquity, a free gift of salvation. There was a payment. You just didn't have to pay it. Someone or something would bear the penalty death, the death. God graciously passed over the guilty party at the Passover, and they annually recognized that event and remind them that God's people remind them that their God is a God who saves. And in Exodus and in Numbers, stipulations were given for this Passover land that was annually given. I mentioned Exodus 12. Exodus 12, 46 says this, It shall be eaten, that's the Passover lamb, in one house. Here's the stipulation. You, not, you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. And here's the one that's pertinent to our passage today. And you shall not break any of its bones there's the fulfillment if Jesus was the final and forever Passover lamb the forever reminder that our God is a God who saves his bones would not be broken either and that's fulfillment number one we're going to come back to it for its significance but look at the second look at verse 37 and again another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced let's go to Zechariah 12 They will look on him whom they have pierced. That passage in Zechariah 12, we'll read it in just a second. Uh, The background here of Zechariah, and I don't expect you to be real knowledgeable of this. Maybe you are, but there's a prophecy that's being taken place. And Zechariah is explaining this prophecy. The prophecy anticipates a time that Israel will find themselves in hopeless peril, danger, because of their sin, specifically their sin of idolatry, putting something in front of God. But that God would intervene with a shepherd to rescue Israel his people, the sinners. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. says, and I will pour out, God speaking, I will pour out on the house of David and and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, listen to this, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have 
pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. It mentions that this shepherd that God would give to his people that had sinned have no need or have no reason to receive grace, but God gives it. The way that he would give it would be by giving a shepherd from the house of David and that he would be pierced, stabbed to death is what that means. The shepherd would rescue God's people from the peril that they brought on themselves, but it would mean that he would die mourning. And this is the prophecy of Zechariah 12. You see, these Jews in our passage in Zechariah, these Jews would weep and mourn at the piercing of the shepherd who took on death that they may live. Are you hearing it yet? So why does John mention this as a fulfillment? Because it's the truth of the gospel, church, that we are the Israelites of old, that we need a Passover lamb, bones intact, who can become death so that we can escape death. And God graciously passes over the sins of men and instead has poured out his wrath on the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You see, you and I are much like the people in this passage in Zechariah. Overcome, helpless against our enemy, the sin within that leads to death. And the good shepherd gave his life for you and me that he may rescue you from your own peril. Why do I bring this up and why even talk about it? Here's the reason. Don't try to earn what has already been given to you. Don't try to earn what has already been given to you. John Piper is a wonderful quote that's just sort of a, a theme of life. It says that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. What does he want from you? He wants your affection. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God doesn't want you to earn his favor. Jesus did that. He wants you to worshipfully rest in the favor granted to you by the Passover lamb who took away your sins. Some of you guys have children, whether they are young or old. There's something about my kids. I've got three and one on the way. Praise God for them, man. They're hard-headed as they can be, but praise God for them. Listen, and you, you will say the same thing about your kids, I'm sure. There's nothing that my kids could ever do that will make me love them more, right? There's nothing that they can do to make me love them more, but please hear me say this. It blesses me so much when they recognize my love for them, and as a response, they give me their affections. Do you hear the symbol there? There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, but man, it blesses him when as a response of his affection for you, you give the affection to the Father. When little Eden, who's two years old, comes up and for no reason at all hugs my leg and says, love you, Daddy. Come on, man. And make a grown man cry. Because that's, that's strong. It's such an image. God gave us that on purpose, church. God gave us that on purpose because that is an image of what he would have us do to him. It blesses the Father when he receives our affections for no reason other than to say, I love you, Father, for who you are. And I'm not going to earn anything. I'm simply responding. This church gathering is a worshipful rest in which we don't try to earn. We, don't, we, we sing loud enough. If we preach good enough. We listen well enough. We take enough notes. Oh, we'll earn it. We'll leave. And God will be, he'll, he'll love us more. How stupid that sounds. This is not a place where we're earning the favor of the Father. Jesus did that. This is a place where we're responding to the favor of God and saying, Father, we love you. We love you. 
We recognize God's love. We give him our affections. Our prayers are to be a worshipful rest. Not where we, if we pray hard enough, when we pray enough, then he'll, he'll give us enough favor. He'll give us more things or he'll love us more. It's ridiculous. Our prayers are an affectionate response to an affectionate God. Even when you fall short of the glory of God, the way you respond to sin the grace that is ever-present, the mercy evermore, the way you respond to sin is a response to the love of God as you give him your affections. Father, I've messed up again, and I know that doing better next time doesn't earn your favor anymore, but I love you because you're a God of grace. Take these affections. Each morning we wake is to be a worshipful rest in which you recognize God's love and you give him your own. That's how you preach the gospel to yourself daily. The third thing, and we're going to look at that passage in Zechariah one more time in just a second. But the third thing is to reserve the pedestal for God alone. To reserve the pedestal for God alone. What I mean by that is the praise pedestal, the one where we tend to elevate ourselves or something else. Reserve that for God alone. We've been in John long enough to know that when a detail stands out as a little odd, there's almost always a special reason why John included it, right? It's possible that John's only aim was to reinforce the humanity of Jesus, kind of again, talk about these docetists to put them in their place, and so Jesus is actually a human being. But whether intended by John or not, once again, I think it's intended here. There is, just like last week, a beautiful gospel analogy that we can pull from our passage this morning. So I want to show it to you. Look at verses 34 and 37. Again, while you keep a finger there, we're going to go right back in just a moment. Verses 34 and 37, real quick. Looking back at 34, it says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 37, and again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. The good shepherd, Jesus, our Jesus, is pierced in John 19. The saving, dying shepherd is pierced in Zechariah chapter 12. But the next chapter of Zechariah tells me John may have meant something more than just telling us some anatomy lessons here. Look at chapter 13, verse 1 of that passage in Zechariah. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, on that day, listen to this, there shall be a fountain, come on now, a fountain opened for the house of David and the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. I want to read that again. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now in that context, the reason the shepherd came to die and to save was to rescue them from the peril caused by, once again, their own idolatry. And God would supply for them a literal fountain. He's not speaking figurative there. Again, we're going to see that there's gospel there. But even in its original intent, there's a literal fountain. God's going to provide that they can be ceremonially made clean, that they would use this fountain to make themselves ceremonially clean from their sin, but it would never wash away their sin permanently, would it? They would use this fountain that God would provide wash themselves, make them clean enough to go and worship in the temple. But we know it would never forever wash away sin. But listen, the readers of John 19, the readers of John 19 verse 37 would now be drawn to the fountain, not of water, but of water and blood flowing, not from a river, but from the side of our Lord Jesus. Church, listen, the fountain is a cleansing flood, not just so that we can be made ceremonially clean for a year, 
but forever clean for all of eternity as we spend intimate moments in fellowship with our Lord Jesus. It's a fountain, a cleansing fountain. We sing about that, right? A fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Power in the blood, washed in the blood. It says here that this is a fountain of blood and water in John 19. Both blood and water. The blood is easy. It's kind of straightforward, right? We've talked about that. Why blood? Because it must be blood in order to remiss sin, to forgive sin. The fountain was filled with blood because we needed to be made right before a holy God, the gospel. And Jesus shed his blood that we may be made right as a result of the blood of the Passover lamb, that God may put to death, death. But what about the water? Blood came from his side, but water came from his side. Whenever I do baptismal counseling, we talk about baptism. I always say, what do you do once a, a day or so, hopefully once a day, to make yourself clean? You take a shower, you take a bath. And I always say, you don't take a bath in chocolate syrup or in Hawaiian punch or in mustard. You take a shower in water. Why? Because water washes. Water has a cleansing effect. And that's exactly the image that we're to take from this, is that there's a blood fountain. But there's also a water fountain. A water fountain that cleans people. So what John is telling us here is that there's blood to atone, blood to forgive, blood to clean of the permanent consequences of sin. But God is also pouring out water to permanently or to daily wash and to cleanse his people. Just like in John chapter 13 when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet and he comes to Peter and he starts to wash his feet. And Peter's like, why are you washing my feet? I should be washing your feet. He says, if I don't wash you, you're not clean and you can't see the kingdom of God. And Peter says, dump it all over me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're made clean. You only need to have your feet regularly cleaned. Isn't that the truth, church? That we are made right before a holy God if we are found in Christ Jesus, and yet daily we fall short of the glory of God. Daily we have sin that we ongoingly struggle with, and we need to be washed. So the application there is, like Israel, be cleansed of idols, church. Idolatry is simply, and that may be an archaic term, Idolatry is literally elevating, or figuratively, elevating on a pedestal, whatever it may be, to a place where only God belongs. And in the United States of America in the year 2022, the thing that we usually place on that pedestal is me. When we think this whole life exists to serve our needs, to make us happy, to make us comfortable, to inject the dopamine into our brains, to make us feel something, to get the car that I've always wanted, to get the house that I've always wanted, to put the kids in the programs that make even them happy, other little idols. And we think that the pursuit of happiness, the American dream, is also the biblical dream, but that is not the dream that God has laid out for us. Praise God when they overlap. But God's desire for you is that you would be glorified in him as you are satisfied in him. That we reserve the pedestal for him alone. That's why when you watch commercials, they're targeting you and targeting you and feeding and saying, we know that you love yourself, and so you'll love yourself more if you buy this, if you buy this, if you go to this place, if you drive this car. This isn't novel. This is very simple. We in this country have it all, until we don't have it all, and then we want that. Because we put ourselves on a pedestal that only God belongs. A simple question. 
please hear me to say this. A simple question, application, what in your life or who in your life is competing with the heart that you have? Where are you making God compete for your time, for your energy, for your affections, for your weekend, for your kids, for your mind? Do you work your weekend around church, honoring God, or on the ball field and social events? What is the primary schedule maker? Do you work your social media habits around glorifying God? around, again, those hits of dopamine that make us feel something when those notifications come? Do you frame your marriage around honoring Jesus, or how can they serve me and make my life more happy, better? Do you work your budget around giving back to God what he's given to you, or around pursuing that American dream? Do you structure your parenting around not self or them, but around Jesus? How do you play sports? How do you work? How do you dress? How do you speak? Who's on the pedestal? Are you making God compete? He will not share you. Reserve the pedestal for God alone. He is worthy of your worship and praise. And that's not a burden, man. That is a liberating, restful comfort. The main thing we see here is that we must be forever washed in the blood. A gruesome scene but a beautiful one for those who know Jesus. But also that we may be daily washed in the water. We're clean because of the work of Jesus, and don't try to earn it. God has earned it for you. Praise him for that reality. But also, go and daily be made clean. Wash yourselves of idols in the fountain supplied at Calvary. I want to close by simply reading the lyrics we sang just a moment ago. Just listen. I hope that you read them already as we were singing them, but sometimes we go into zombie mode and just words come out. Listen to this. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Listen to this. Till all the ransomed sons of God, daughters of God, be saved to sin no more. It's eternity. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supplied. Listen to this, last thing. Redeeming means buying, purchasing. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. 